Hello and welcome to the next episode. We've had a bit of a, a change in status. Not as a scientist, but one of us has had a change in status. And what is that, Kirsten? It is, I am now officially a PhD Scientia candidate. Whoa, that is a big, big change. I'm officially a PhD student. Finally. My student card now says RS instead of UG for undergrad. (laughs) (laughs) It's official. I'm telling you again, you don't need that identification here. I know you very well. And there is no security in this building. But I want to show it off. Okay, okay, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I can see that. Okay, I'm Angel Lopez-Sanchez. And I'm PhD candidate Kirsten Banks. And we we are are the the Scientists! Hello everyone, welcome to episode number... 34. 34. 34. <laughs> episode 6 of this season? Uh, I think it is 7. I'm pretty sure it One, is. 1, 2, 3, 4, no, five, seven. Six, seven. Uh, 7. Episode I'm... 7 of the season 3. I swear I'm smart. 7. That's exciting. Yeah, it episode is. 7. Mm-hmm. We are behaving lately very well and we are doing this every two weeks, more or less. We are, yes. So it is great. It's been fantastic. It is great. People are listening to us. We are getting plenty of feedback. We are, which brings us to our first point of doing thing business. Yes, thank you, Angel. We have questions. Thank you, everyone, for sending in questions today. Angel and I, we posted a few days ago asking for some questions and you guys delivered. So we are going to read those questions and answer them. Yes, we were very surprised and happy, of course, of receiving a lot of feedback we are and now i'm going to be feeling a bit bad because we are going to be answering to these questions that we have been receiving today and yesterday but we are not going to keep any answer to the question that we got during the last couple of weeks that we have been busy traveling starting a phd that's right but don't worry because after finishing recording this episode i'm going to compile all those questions that have been not answered and we will do our best for answering them in our next episode in a couple of weeks. But for now, we start off with Gary from Twitter asking, what would be your first place to visit, not on the Earth, in the solar system? What cool place would you want to see in person? Thank you very much, Gary. I'm going to answer first. So for me, uh, I would really love to see Saturn from very close. So, I mean, for very close, not very too close, but to see Saturn with the rings and the moons, I don't know, let's go to say, um, Titan. Let's go to be in Titan, mm. the second largest moon in the solar system. Wouldn't be too bad. And that would be good because on one hand you are watching or you are seeing all the magnificent Saturn, the rings and some few other satellites, but on the other hand you are observing a satellite, I was going to say a planet, <laughs> because it is... Well, it is larger than Mercury, and yes. it is larger than Pluto, and larger than any of the other dwarf planets. But it is a satellite because it is moving around Saturn. Mm. And it has a very dense atmosphere, and we know that there are lakes and mm. oceans of... Methane. Sun. Yeah. For those who don't know what methane is, that is fart gas. Yeah. <laughs> it is CH4 for chemists. 
Mm. I remember in high school we made a methane molecule with spaghetti and marshmallows. Okay. It was very yummy. Mm. It was yummy. <laughs> it was indeed. Mm. Where would I go? I'm not really sure. Well, I mean, satin's pretty great. Satin's pretty great. But where, where would I go that's not Saturn? Probably Jupiter? The other big planet? The other big planet? Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, it is interesting the choices that uh, we both have made because none of us wants to go to Mars. Mm. Why? Mm. Uh, We've seen lots of (laughs) photos from Mars, like being on Mars. And honestly, Mars is very similar aesthetically to Outback Australia. And like, we live here. (laughs) You you know, it's, it's... it's all much of the same. No, I just, no, the, uh, I would just like to see the, the, the activity on Jupiter yeah. and see the movement of those clouds and the great red spot. I agree. I think that uh, these two, going to Jupiter or going to Saturn, will be one of our very first ideas mm. because they're very different to what we are used to here on Earth. Exactly. They're very different planets, very different systems, and it would be great to see something like that. Yeah. Perhaps another option would be Pluto. Maybe. 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 Pluto's a bit far. Uh, yeah. But, it, you know, cold. if we could, cold. if we go there straight away, maybe <laughs> Pluto. Thank you for asking yeah. that, Gary. That's a great question Good, to start one. off with. Yeah, let's go for another question. Another question from Alex on Twitter. Uh, another Starlink mega constellation question. Oh, uh, yeah. And we said we wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't complain about this today. It's okay. This is a good question. Will reducing albedo, so reflectivity yeah, brightness, yes. and brightness, really be enough to address the problem of light pollution in, for example, the search for asteroids or planet X? No. Short answer, no. <laughs> you, can, you can hear the disdain in Daniel's voice. Yeah, first, the attempt of reducing the brightness, I mean the albedo, of the latest Starlink satellites that have been recently launched... It seems that had failed. Oh, shocker. During the last few days, we have been seeing in social media, mainly in Twitter, some images that people around the world have been taking of the latest satellites launched by Starlink. And really, the brightness, it, it, it is increasing. It, it is not going down. I don't know what they have done. How, um, how does this happen? I don't know. I don't know what they have done. Really, I don't know what they have done. Even if they are able to decrease the albedo of the Starlink satellites, they will be still very bright when we compare with uh, the faint objects that we want to see. So we Mm. will see in any professional telescope, and in majoritarily in all amateur telescopes, you will see the trace, the track of the satellite over the the background of the sky. And that is still concerning, because with many of these, it will be much, much harder, as it seems we are observing, it's going to be much harder to to be able to find these asteroids, comets, Mm. and some few other objects. On top of that, we are thinking about the light pollution, but there is something else that we cannot forget regarding contamination by Starlink, which is radioelectric contamination that is going to be affecting a lot radio interferometers. Oh, I see. Radio so it's not just visible light, it's yes. radio light as well. Yes, and there is an increasing concern about that. There have been a recent uh, paper that have been submitted to Archive. I don't remember, I don't have it here at the moment, but now that you ask. It was made by some few astronomers, Italian astronomers, that are very concerned about that. And in some way, compiling all the information we have so far about 
Starlink mainly made the point, hey, we really need a regulation in the space mm. and we should try to take legal actions against Starlink, mm. against SpaceX, yes. because if they are starting to doing that in this way, they will regain some right of continuing doing it during a lot of time. Mm. Because really, like what they're doing is quite reckless. It is. It is completely reckless. Yeah. It is completely reckless. And mm. We have to re remind everyone that they have plenty of followers and they are this defensor of SpaceX. And we love SpaceX. We yes. have a famous episode number our number four. episode number four mm. that is all about uh, SpaceX as recovering the rockets and fantastic and uh, exactly space heavy. A lot of what they do is fantastic. It's just the, the Starlink thing is just hitting us the wrong way. And there have been also a study, not a study per se, but some few plots that uh, I don't remember the name, but someone have done uh, in the in the internet saying, okay, um, if you are a rich country or you are a poor country, will you be able to pay for the internet accessibility that Starlink is providing? Mm. And it seems that the only countries that in general, globally, they will be able to afford it are the, the countries that they already have plenty of internet. And that's defeating the whole point of what Elon Musk was going to do. Yes, so I seem to remember there was only a lazy point just in the limit between the two of them. Mm. Anyway, we can talk about that in another episode if our listeners want, because I don't want to be known as the guy that is always complaining about the Starlink. <laughs> Speaking of complaining, to the next question. <laughs> More complaining. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice is not going to explode. That's okay, it's not the question. Ah, okay. That's not the question. Oh, thank you. Thank it's you. okay. Thank goodness. So, Beetlejuice, this is from uh, Cafuego. Okay. Good friend of the show. Beetlejuice is possibly brightening again, and it seems as if the dimming may have been due to dust. What is dust made of, and could such a dust cloud be orbiting the star and causing periodic dimming? Interesting interesting question there. Yeah, it is a very interesting question. I, mean... I believe we did we discuss this a couple of weeks ago where it likely wasn't dust because there was no dimming in the infrared. Yes, in the previous episode we were discussing the fact that the dimming of Betelgeuse was very evident in optical wavelengths, in the, the colors that we see, but it is not that much in the near infrared. That means that there is something there happening and it could have been dust. Mm -hmm. And now, since that episode, we got the fantastic images obtained with the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, using the sphere instrument of the surface of Betelgeuse, and it is clearly showing the southern part of the star that is quite dim in comparison to the top part, uh, because there is something there that it could be dust, or it could be just uh, something happening in the external layers of the super red giant star that is really deformed and bubbly. Yes. And I'm not sure if we said that the dust, it is formed in the external layers of these red giant stars and super red giant stars. 
And it is actually something that we are seeing in Betelgeuse too. We, we have seen that it's forming uh, nebulas surrounding it and a lot of, of the material of the nebula surrounding this brightest star, it is made of dust. Although we never said exactly what dust is. So dust is basically any... <laughs> it's it's very funny. We are not talking here about the dust that is the main theme driving uh, the adventure in the famous books by Philip Pullman, His Dark Materials. That is first the novel that was written some few years ago, three novels in fact, and then now it is a TV series that's tend to be very famous. We are not talking about that dust. No. No, that is not the dust. No. I have the feeling that you don't know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what is his dark materials. Nope. You have never heard about that. You have to read a bit more science fiction. Okay. Okay. Um, So dust, in a scientific sense, is very funny because it reminds me of how astronomers view the periodic table as well. You have hydrogen, helium, and metals. Essentially, dust is pretty much anything that's not hydrogen or helium, (laughs) once again. So it's these clouds of material that's not just hydrogen and helium out in space that blocks light Mm. from our stars. For that, you have to have molecules. Yes. So that is also very important. You have these little molecules that have at least a real metal. A real metal. A real one. Aluminium, magnesium, or something like that. Sodium sometimes. Mm -hmm. But mainly aluminium, magnesium, sometimes iron too. So for what we understand, the red giants or the super giants are the main producers of this kind of large grains. Not not very large when we compare with other kind of molecules. But are usually these uh, magnesium silicates and aluminium oxides that are the typical ones that are going to be forming in the expanding atmosphere, external layers of the expanding atmosphere of these uh, red stars. Mm. And that is what is released into the interstellar medium. And at the end of the day, what many astronomers are suggesting it is that what we have seen in this uh, phenomenon dimming of Betelgeuse during the last few months, it is just the dust emission by a part of the star. Mm-hmm. It might be that. It might be not that. Yes. It might be still uh, things that are happening in the very chaotic convention layers of this super red giant star. But what is sure it is that it is not connected with anything that is happening in the nucleus of the star. Oh, okay. So that is what. That's important. That is important, and that is why we have been saying. And if you have been following us, particularly you have been following me, I have been saying from the day one, that is not meaning that Betelgeuse is going to explode as a supernova. No. No. That, that is the reason, because it is not connected with the core, what is happening in the core. So still we will have Betelgeuse, hopefully for some few, at least few tens, hundreds of years, perhaps even a hundred thousand years or so. Uh, that is good. I mean, I'm relieved. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking on connecting this with my space news, the ones that I have for today. But I think it is better that we first answer all the feedback and then we will be back to Beetlejuice for my space news. Okay, we have three more questions. Let's power through them. Okay, so the next one comes from uh, Maynard on Twitter. 
Independence Day 2, the movie. What? (laughs) (laughs) The aliens are attempting to mine the molten Earth core for a power source. The question is, don't other planets in our solar system have similar or larger cores that could be mined without all the fuss? Now, what fun would that be? I I don't know. First, I have not seen Independence Day 2. Sorry, apologies in (laughs) advance. Uh, It was already a bit too hard to see the first one. (laughs) Scientific Uh, inaccuracies? mm, Plenty. (laughs) Plenty. That's what makes it a comedy. (laughs) Well, more or less. Anyway, so look, short answer is yes. There are other molten cores in the solar system of other planets that can be mined without all the fuss of, you know, Hollywood and humans being completely extinct due to an alien impact. But uh, like what I said, where's the fun in that? (laughs) What is the fun in that? Mm -hmm. So as far as we understand the interior of uh, planets, terrestrial planets, Venus for sure has cemented core. Definitely. And the moon and Mars even perhaps. Mm Mm-hmm. Mercury, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. But even though, perhaps. There's still plenty of other candidates. Yes, for example, large satellites, or even just small satellites that are around the large planets, Jupiter and Saturn. And we've seen plenty of activity happening in those satellites. It is the tidal heating from the large planet, from Jupiter and from Saturn, that is keeping the core basically melted in these uh, large satellites and that is why they are having this amazing activity. I mean, take a look at Io, for example. It's just popping off. Perfect example. Mm. The surface of Europa is basically clean of impact craters because the activity that is happening in the interior of Europa because of the tidal forces, the tidal heating by Jupiter is doing that that material is just coming into the surface and cleaning, smoothing everything and having all that uh, almost featureless crust. There we go. Good. Okay, now I have a couple of questions. Um, one, it is from our friend Oz Scooter, Cam, also in Twitter. When looking up the night sky, I have a hard time visualizing that some objects are close and other objects far, far away. Do you know any computer models that might help? So, I totally agree. It is hard to tell how far away things are in space when you're just looking at them in the night sky. So, I would suggest using Stellarium is my particular, uh, I quite enjoy using Stellarium on my computer. So you can look up these objects that you're looking at and you can find out how far away they are using the Stellarium database. Hmm. That's probably the best that I have to come up with here. What do you think, Angel? Yeah, that is a good idea. I have always loved to use this planetarium software for traveling across the galaxy and traveling across the universe, just visiting different galaxies even. Uh, it gives you a bit of an idea, but again, it is sometimes hard to comprehend the vastness of a space. The other thing I would suggest, it is what I sometimes do with students, particularly with primary school students, mm-hmm. that is just getting some little of these balls of... Like marbles? Marble. No, not, not only marbles, but this kind of... Like bouncy foam, balls? Foam, foam balls that you can okay. put in a pin. Oh, yeah. And then you put them at different distances mm-hmm. in, the, in the classroom. Everyone, or, or a kid holding one of them. Forming the constellation, as you see, usually I try to do that with the Southern Cross because we have only five easy stars. Mm-hmm. 
and then you see the different distances. You put everyone in a different distance. Ah. There are some few projects about that. You can even try to put the color of the star or the uh, how large or how bright the star is. Just changing the size and the color of these balls. Cool. Good. Thank you very much for that. And another question from Damiano Febrarino on Twitter. Are there any citizen science projects you might recommend? Always. 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 Let's have a look at our list. If you go just directly to Sue Universe, mm -hmm. you will find plenty of citizen science projects. Not only astronomy, although the very first ones were astronomy. Yes. That was the very famous Galaxy Sue citizen science project. Yes. But still, there are a couple of... Not a couple, actually, there are... Uh, how many count there? 10, 13. I see right now 13 astronomy-related projects. So anything that tickles your fancy, really. Yes, and one of them, it is something that I forgot to mention in our previous episode, because I wanted to bring it up, connecting with the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, that is uh, the Star Note Citizen Science Project, that is, uh, if you want to help transcribe the work that the women astronomers in Harvard, mm -hmm. these computers at Harvard, um, you can go and listen about that in a previous episode, uh, they were doing, so they have the notebooks, and they are looking now for people who are helping transcribing this to have them in an electronic form. So these are the diaries by Annie Jump Cannon, Wilhelmina Fleming, and Henrietta Swant Levitt. So you can go there. Besides that, I will recommend always try to play with the Galaxy Zoo project. Yes, please. There three. There are three of them at the moment. One that is trying to. It is called Clamp Scout. Something like that. Yeah, Galaxy Zoo Clamp Scout. So it is just trying to identify. Start forming regions in galaxies, the clampness, little clumps of a region in a galaxy. Another one that is the Galaxy Zoo Mobile, so you can identify your galaxies using an app in your phone. Mm -hmm. And the standard typical Galaxy Zoo, that you just identify galaxies mainly from the Slow and Digital Sky Survey. So plenty, plenty to choose from. Plenty. There is a second question that Damiano asks. And I think I'm going to ask, but we are not going to answer. So he also asked, or are any other projects that you might think they are good for amateurs, astronomers to get involved with? Oh. And I think it is a very interesting comment, a very interesting question. And then we are going to keep that for a future episode. Okay, thank you everyone for sending in your lovely questions. Let's get on to space news now, though. Angel, let's go first. Okay, my space news was, again, talking about Beetlejuice. <laughs> surprise, surprise. No, it's a great topic to continue coming back to. Like you said, we should probably have our own little segment for Beetlejuice. No, but probably with this would be the last one, or at least the last one in the next few episodes. I mean, Beetlejuice is going down. It's, it's not going to be in the sky for much longer. So um, there's that too. Anyway, my space news it is that uh, perhaps you have already heard that Beetlejuice is starting to be a bit brighter again. Ooh. 
It Beetlejuice is coming back. Yes, it is recovering a bit of, of the all the brightness that it have been losing for the last uh, few months. Precisely on the 22 of February, there was another of these astronomers' telegram. You mean astronomers' telegram? Yeah, one of those. Uh, again, for the by the same uh, people who were submitting the previous astronomers' telegrams mm -hmm. regarding the brightness of Beetlejuice. Uh, Edward Ginan, Rich, Richard Wasotonic from Villanova University, and well, I think there are now a couple more. Thomas Carderburg, AADSO, and Donald Corona, Texas and A&M University. Anyway, at the end of the day, what they were observing clearly, or what everyone is observing clearly, it is that it's starting to be a bit brighter again, and uh, they were reporting that the minimum of the star in V magnitude, in the visible magnitude, mm -hmm. was around 1.614 plus minus 0 0.008 magnitude. That's, that's pretty precise. Between the 7th and 13th February, and that is approximately the 424 days after the last light minimum that was observed in mid-December 2018. Meaning that the present fading episode is quite consistent with the persistent 420-430 day period that we actually mentioned in our very first episode that we were talking about the dimming of Peter mm. Juice. Mm -hmm. So that is all normal. That's good. So it's just clear it is disappearing in all the um, people who are recording that. So it's now half a magnitude of around 1.55 or nice. something like that. A bit, not 1.6, but 1.5 going to 1. Yeah. It's getting close to its usual minimum brightness, so mm -hmm. that's quite nice. So that is good. And the other thing I wanted to emphasize it is that these astronomers, if you remember who we were discussing in one of our previous episodes, they were predicting this. Yes. They were saying... Don't worry, Peter Chus will start recovering its brightness in some moment in mid-February to late February. And, and what do you know? It's mid-February to late February! Yes, and that is what is happening. So in any way, I have seen some few writings by several astronomers, including the famous bad astronomers Phil Plate, mm -hmm. that um, have been summarizing all the situation and insisting, hey guys, really, Peter Chus is going to explode at a supernova yet. However, again, all this situation has provided a lot of visibility to the fact that the stars are changing brightness from time to time. That this mm. is something that we can see not only in our lifetimes, but even in a period of little, just a, a few, few months, week, a few weeks, weeks months, exactly. or days even. And that we need to continue monitoring even the very bright stars, because mm. we don't know exactly what they may happen to them. Astronomy happening in now, like our lifetime because when we, whenever we talk about things changing in astronomy for example when I talked about my honours thesis when galaxies were colliding over billions of years it's like no one's going to be around for that mm -hmm. but we're seeing this on a, a weekly monthly sort of time frame and that's really cool yes 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 and that I can very, very briefly connect that with all the amazing job that um, radio interferometers like the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, the ASCAP, is starting to do in the sense that as it is a kind of a survey machine observing all the sky in just one day, mm. we are now monitoring all the sky that we can see from the southern hemisphere day after day and we are finding many transients. 
Yes. And many things that we didn't know about them just a few years ago and we are starting to discover that it is opening a full new parameter space of things that are still to be discovered out there. New, exactly. New exotic objects. It's so. always so exciting. Mm-hmm. Great. So that is basically my space news. I don't want to talk much more about Beetlejuice. Uh, what about yours? So I have a bit of a story a that story. I want to share. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's space related. I always deliver that it's space related. But um, I went out with the girls the other night and we went to a bar. Stay with me here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been thinking about what wanting to be more active on social media, creating content like videos and whatnot. And I thought, you know, I want to make a video about a galaxy cocktail. So a bit of backstory on this. There is a gas cloud near the center of the Milky Way galaxy that has a chemical in it called ethyl formate, which give raspberries their taste and rum its smell. So I decided to go up to the bartender and be like, hey, here's this random space fact, by the way. What do you think? Can we make this into a cocktail? And they did. They delivered. It was amazing. It was like rum. They they only had cherries, so we did some sort of cherry base. Okay. okay. It, was, it tasted really nice. It was really good. And you know what? I, because, you know, I'm always trying to boost my profile here and there. And I said to them, hey, if you're going to put this on the menu, consider calling it the Astro Kirsten. <laughs> so there might be a cocktail out there named after me. Wow. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? That is quite cool. Yes, 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 yes. So mm-hmm. if you're ever in Sydney, everyone, go to Newtown, go to the bar Black Sheep. And see if the Astro Kirsten is on offer <laughs> at that bar on the menu. Ah, oh, it's so cool. Okay, they should put there a bit of the explanation. Of oh, definitely. From where that is coming from, not only from the author, our famous Astro Kirsten here. Of course. But uh, also how she had the idea of, you know, this kind of molecular cloud with this kind of special mm. smell and let's go to put it together to do a cocktail. That's it. Okay, well, that... Enjoy that, a nice drink and learn about space. I, I would have never had had that kind of idea to confess but <laughs> very good so again that's my little uh, space news astro story perfect good okay well i think we can jump directly into our main topic of this episode yes which is globular clusters mm-hmm. so going from the center of the milky way to very very far away still part of the milky way galaxy but in the halo so let's start with what is a globular cluster so when we're looking out into space, we can see stars all around us, they're in galaxies, but sometimes they are also clumped together in a cluster. So they're a bit denser. There are two main types of star clusters. We have our open star clusters, which are formed from the gas and dust inside the disk of the Milky Way galaxy, for example. But then we have these globular clusters that exist in the halo, so kind of around the Milky Way galaxy. If you imagine your Milky Way as a frisbee or a pancake, it is around that pancake or frisbee that these globular clusters exist. So yes, that is a very important thing about globular clusters to do not be confused with open clusters. Yes. Because they are very different in everything. In every, every way. every, in everything that you can look at. They are different. And one of the important ones that I personally quite like to mention is that open clusters tend to be a lot younger 
than globular clusters. Ooh, much, 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 younger. much younger. Much, much younger. And that's because they don't exist for as long as globular clusters. Because they, they like I said, they exist inside the disk of the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> and because there's a lot more stuff in the disk of the galaxy, there's a lot more gravity, a lot more gravitational interactions as well, that literally rip apart these clusters, the open clusters. Mm -hmm. yeah. But globulars, there's not a lot of stuff out in the halo, so they stay together for a very long time. So just for putting a bit more into perspective these two categories, open clusters usually have some few hundreds, perhaps even no, thousands of stars, yeah. but global clusters have hundreds, thousands to millions mm. of stars, many more stars. The stars in the globular clusters are very old. The stars in the open clusters are very young. Actually, they have been just stars that are born. Just born, recently. yes. Very hot, young blue stars. Kind of like the Pleiades. Exactly. Exactly because of that, open clusters usually have still plenty of gas and dust. Yes. Globular clusters do not have any gas or dust. No. And on top of that... When we are talking about ages and how recent the stars in open clusters have been formed when we compare to stars in globular clusters, we can also put that into what we call the metallicity, the content in metals, mm -hmm. in the sense that globular clusters usually have very old stars that have very low amount of metals, mm -hmm. very low metallicity, but open clusters, they have plenty of metals. They actually are open clusters that have a higher content of metals than our sun. Yes. So lots of stars very similar to our sun in open clusters. But these globular clusters, and by the way, so story time back to when I was working at Sydney Observatory. Whenever I would describe uh, when we're in the planetarium and I'm trying to go from looking, looking at small things up to bigger and bigger and bigger things, and I'd show the Orion Nebula, an open cluster will probably be fallen from something like the Orion Nebula, and then boom, we have the Pleiades star cluster here. When you're looking at an open cluster, you kind of see a lot of open space around the stars. And so, oh, there we go. Open space, open star cluster. Then when I go to a globular cluster, there's not as much open space. Right? Mm -hmm. They're all quite squished together, a lot more dense. But then I never really thought about what sort of analogy could a globular cluster be like? Then it hit me, maybe three or four years into working at the observatory, wait a second, globular clusters, glob, globe. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> it's a globular cluster. Glob, that is coming from Latin. Mm -hmm, exactly, <laughs> meaning a small sphere. Mm -hmm, exactly, and that is what you will mainly see if you observe them using an amateur telescope. Mm. You will be able to resolve the external parts of the globular clusters, usually, but the central parts are so dense in stars that mm. unless you take a photo or you have a very good telescope and a very good eye, you will not be able to see that there are holes between stars. Exactly. Even <laughs> it's then. It's just like, very condensed. They're and, so dense. And the condensedness, is that right? Is, is that a word? We're going to make it a word. Condensed <laughs> the condensedness. The condensedness. That, I mean, the, the, the amount of condensation you have in a globular cluster, it is another parameter that defines them. Oh, so that's interesting. It, yeah, depending how dense they are, how packed they are in the center of it, they are a bit more elongated and you can find more stars in the outer skids. That also has something to do probably with their evolution, although we still don't know that much about them yet. Well, if we can characterize globular clusters based on how 
based on their condensedness, <laughs> what other things can we characterize globular clusters on? Well, as I mentioned before, mainly I will say the ages. Yes. And the low content in metals of the stars. And Let's that's because they are quite old, these stars. Exactly. That is the thing. So the ages, it is really, really, they, they were formed almost at the beginning of the time, let's say that. So the standard ages that we have for globular clusters, it is around 12.7 billion Keep, years. Keeping in mind that the universe is about 13.8 billion years old, yep. as far as we know. Yep. Globular clusters actually usually have the oldest stars that we know. Mm. Not the oldest star in our galaxy per se, well, it's another topic, I would say <laughs> that another day. But anyway, I remember when I was growing up reading still in books that there was a big contradiction or a polemic observational fact that uh, before getting the right numbers for the expansion of the universe and knowing exactly the age of the universe, the ages that we were deriving for the stars in globular clusters was much older than the age that we were getting for the age of the universe. Oh, no. Yeah. So no, they no, were no, no, saying, no. okay, the age of the universe might be around 10 billion, billion years. years old. Okay. But the ages of the globular clusters, they were coming as 15 to 20 mm. billion years. So, oh, no. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> we didn't know that much about not only the expansion of the universe, but also about the uh, parameters that are controlling the evolution of stars and mm. how to precisely derive the ages of these stars. And just imagine being one of the scientists working on that study saying that your globular cluster stars are almost twice the age of the universe. Mm. And you'd be looking at your code and be looking at your calculations and you're like, where am I going wrong? Doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't look wrong, but this can't be... What? <laughs> Probably from plenty of astronomers were like that in mm -hmm. those times. Then again, who isn't when we're looking at our <laughs> <Yeah>. data? <laughs> that is what we do. Also in astronomy, I have never liked this kind of classification, but let's go to say it in any way because it is a standard astronomy. This kind of stars that are very old with not that much amount of metals, mm -hmm. we call them population two stars. Not population one? No, population one are the stars that are in the disk of the Milky Way. What? Young stars, usually young, I mean, that have high, oh, high amount so of metals. It's backwards, it like the backwards. magnitude system. Exactly. Oh. So population one, it is what we have around, yep. let's say, the typical standard the, stars. The first ones that we see around us, exactly. kind of. Population two are the stars that we were discovering in the regular clusters. Mm -hmm. And then we are starting to see also some few population two stars in the Milky Way when we were able to identify them, very old stars. Yep. And I'm guessing population three are the ones from the beginning of the universe. Exactly. Population okay. three stars are the stars that they only were made of hydrogen and helium. Just and you wait until we find a population four stars and they're just helium. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, but, but I have never liked that definition that much, but still, we have to mention it. Yes. But in any case, even though they have very low metallicity, again, the amount of metal, the amount of anything that is not hydrogen and helium. That's right, anything bigger than helium. And that more or less all of, all of globular clusters have these old ages. Observationally, we are still dividing in two types. Oh, the two types of globular clusters. Two types of globular clusters. I didn't know this. Oh, well, cool. You know how we are in astronomy. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Type 1 are metal-rich. Type 2 are metal poor. <laughs> okay. Okay, because let me, let me say that again. 
even though the metallicities are very low, mm-hmm. there are two kind of groups. One yes. that is very, very, very low, and another that is being low, it is a bit higher than the very, very low. Very low ones. Okay. So, so there are low metallicity globular clusters, which I would expect that these mm-hmm. are, you know, the ones that were formed very, very long ago in the universe. And then you have your very high ones. So how did the very high ones come about? Uh, well, th- that is a very interesting question. Uh, first, as I was trying to say, usually these metal poor type 2 globular clusters are the ones that are giving the almost 13 billion very years old. Of, old, of, of very old stars. Mm. Um, in the Milky Way, uh, we have been able to get some few of these and analyze them, and it seems that they are more or less aligned, always in a plane. So that is a suggestion that these kind of globular clusters are captured globular clusters from dwarf satellites that collided with the Milky Way a lot of time ago. Oh, interesting. So that is one thing. And we still don't know much about how the globular clusters are formed, mm-hmm. although we are going to be talking a bit more about that. Stay but, tuned for more. <laughs> yeah. But the other metal-rich type 1 globular clusters, they will have an age of, let's say, 11, 10 billion years. That okay, is more so or significantly less, younger. Yes, more or less in the time that the Milky Way was started to be formed. Interesting. Okay. And I forgot to mention before something interesting because we don't have many globular clusters in our galaxy. We only have a couple couple tens or so? No, 150. Oh, 150. That's a couple tens, that's more or less. But, for example, we have been able to count more or less the number of globular clusters around Andromeda Galaxy. Of course, because it's much easier to count globular clusters around other galaxies than our own. Definitely, around 500 in Andromeda. That's significantly more. And, well, in elliptical galaxies, imagine, in M87, they have uh, around 30. 1300, no, sorry, 1300 or 13,000, no, 13,000, 13,000 global clusters. The same thing with uh, M104, the Sombrero Galaxy. Many of the stars like that we see in this famous Hubble image, Mm -hmm. they are not stars in the Milky Way, they are global clusters. Are they actually global clusters? They are global clusters, and actually that image was mainly obtained not for observing the galaxy, that too, but they wanted (laughs) to know things about the global clusters. That's really awesome. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's just another very interesting thing that, that is connecting with galaxy evolution and formation and so on. And that is why observing and understanding globular clusters it is so important. Mm. But we still don't know much about them. So one of the things we don't know a lot about is actually how they're formed. No, we don't. No. But there was a recent paper. Mm-hmm. A recent paper titled Globular Cluster Formation from Colliding Substructure. And the authors of this paper, we have Piero Medal, we have Alessandro Lupi, Jörg Demand, Andreas Burkert, and Douglas Lin. Apologies if I have um, mispronounced any names there. Mm-hmm. Uh, majority of people from the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of California. We have a few other ones as well. Yes, from some astronomers from Italy, Switzerland, Germany. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have investigated a scenario where the formation of global clusters is triggered by high-speed collisions between atomic cooling subhalos happened at the very early t- stages of the universe, where mm-hmm. we have these dark matter halos 
merging together. Now that part I know about. Yes. That relates to my yes. honest thesis a little yes, bit. It is very much connected because at the end of the day, it is just trying to understand galaxy evolution. Of course. Um, we also have to realize that globular clusters, in some way, sometimes some people have been tempted to say these are kind of very dwarf galaxies, but they yes. are actually no. Yeah, it, it, there's a certain limit that you have to... There, there is actually no, and there is a good point about that, because ah. usually in galaxies, even in, in elliptical, dwarf elliptical galaxies, you are going to there's find... There's gas. Perhaps a bit of gas. Dust? Perhaps a bit of dust. Oh, what else? Different stellar populations. Oh, of course. You're the, going to find on, different stellar populations, and not mm. only basically a single stellar population there. But we do find majority single stellar, stellar populations, populations yes. in globular clusters. Perhaps a couple of them, but just a couple of them separated by a bit of metallicity. But and majority so on, but of them not, are very but much mainly, the same. Mainly the same thing uh, that they were created 11, 10, 11, 12 billion years ago, and mm. that is. Which is why, yeah, which is why they're generally all the same age, because they're generally the same population mm. type. There have been always these. Uh, controversy about how they were formed at, at the beginning. We were thinking about the monolithic collapse of the big cloud of gas that formed the Milky Way. And in some way, in surrounding the galaxy, these clumps were formed. And that way, the globular clusters were created. But uh, that never worked really well. And that is why this paper, it is actually very interesting. Because that is taking into account the Lambda CDM, the Lambda Cold and Matter model of yes. the universe. The Currently most accepted model. Exactly. The hierarchical uh, scenario in which first you have little entities and you're forming larger and larger galaxies with, with those. And when it is happening is that uh, the mini halos, let's go to say that, Mini halos are colliding together, and the dark matter halos, because these halos merely are dark matter, mm -hmm. they are just crossing one across the other. Like, yes. for example, what we see in the bullet cluster yes. that is in collision. Because they but, don't interact. Yes, because they are yeah. not interacting, only mm. gravitatorily. But the gas that it is within these two small halos, they collide together and they just quickly form. <laughs> all the stars. Mm, and wow. That, and that is why we can see that mainly they are very old and they are more or less the same kind of stars there. Because they're all like, boom, stars. Boom. Stars. We're yes. here now. Yes. So that is what they have been exploring in this paper, which is quite interesting. It's and really they have been cool. running some simulations too to try to prove it. So mm. it's, it's quite good. So some astronomers, some people thought that globular clusters could be very many dwarf galaxies. Could there be black holes at the center of these things then? Ah, oh, that is another... Of course we have, you know, when we talk about galaxies, yeah. we talk about there's always black holes at the center. What's the deal with these? Another excellent question because they have been looking, or astronomers have been looking for black holes in global clusters for a lot of time. And especially if a lot of these stars are very, very old too, hmm. you'd expect a lot of them to maybe have formed black holes and, towards the end of their lives. Yeah, and considering that global clusters still have few hundred thousands to even millions of stars. Mm. And, well, this kind of system, we should expect that perhaps there have been an intermediate mass black hole in the center. Yes. And that is what we have been, uh, what astronomers have been trying to find. And there are evidences that are pointing to a 4,000 solar masses intermediate mass black hole oh. in the center of M15, one famous globular cluster. 
Okay. So there is some few attempts. Another globular cluster where it seems that it's very clear that it has a black hole, it is a globular cluster in the Andromeda galaxy oh. that is called Mayal 2 or Mayal 2. Mm-hmm. That it seems that it is hosting a 20,000 solar masses black hole. Is that intermediate still? That is still intermediate okay, because cool. you are not getting to the million. So oh, I see. Supermassive black holes, let's say. Millions. Let's say from half million, mm-hmm. they are almost in the order of magnitude. Yes, half exactly. Half million, <laughs> up, up. But that is a few thousands, ten thousands are still intermediate mass black holes. Yep. And I think that that will be still a bit of research that will be conducted in global clusters in the next years, decades, particularly with the new telescopes, large telescopes that are coming, just to identify this kind of black holes, because they should be expected in but some so way there. So there's evidence, but we haven't found any yet. Uh, no, Mayal 2, it seems that it is confirmed. Ooh! Uh, the one in M15, I think it is almost confirmed, but not quite. Okay. It is just there. Just waiting, just waiting and, for that confirmation. And I remember also reading about uh, Omega Centauri and some few others. That was uh, the one that I was thinking. 47 Tucan and so, so mm. on, that they they are looking for it, although there's still a bit of not clear what is happening there. Mm. So I think we've covered global clusters pretty well, at least as far as the things that we know about global clusters, which it may seem that we haven't covered a lot. Mm-hmm. That's because we don't know a lot. Yeah, there, there are plenty of many things about global cluster. Actually, I forgot something that I wanted to Ooh. say before. And, and it is historically how we have used the global clusters to realize that we were not in the center of the Milky Way. Mm. Because the majority of the globular clusters we see then around we do. the center of the Milky Way. Constellations of Sagittarius, Scorpio, Fucus, and mm. all, all, all of that, uh, Centaurus. And we don't see many on the other part of the sky. And it was precisely Shapley at the beginning of the 20th century who realized that I was able to measure more or less, not not quite right, but more or less distances to global clusters. And, and they were able to say, okay, uh, our sun, it is in a big thing that we call the galaxy. Yes. <laughs> the Milky Way, that is not in the center. Mm. And that galaxy, that thing, has this size. I don't remember which size they were saying, but it yeah. was not correct. It was of course. Bad. It would have been really hard yeah, back then it was, anyway. It was very hard to It's do. still hard today. Mm-hmm. Still, yes. Still, as I was trying to mention, uh, studying global clusters, we have plenty of other results in we astronomy. Do. Yes, we do indeed. So in that, on that note, we thought we'd end with our favourite globular clusters. And I'll start off by saying that my favourite is Omega Centauri. Easy one. Easy one to pick. Because for, for one reason, it's, it's just fantastic to look at. It's also the biggest and most massive globular cluster that we know of orbiting around the Milky Way. And when you when you look at it, you see there are millions of stars. Mm-hmm. There's not a huge agreement on how many stars there are, because it, that is a tough thing to do, but there, it's about 10 million, which I would like to warrant that means we should call it Oh My God Centauri. <laughs> we already mentioned Omega Centauri in a previous episode, episode number 11, mm-hmm. that is our first season, that it was our WhatsApp object. Yes. 
and uh, Kerstin was, as usual, very, very, very excited about talking about, oh my god, Centauri. Exactly, it's, it, it's, it's oh my god. It's fabulous. It oh is, my god, there are so many stars. I know that you can see with your naked eye and great, and it is not a global cluster. Wait, what? <laughs> hey, what? <laughs> well, it is a global cluster, and that is why I was keeping this a bit of secret for you, but... Oh. We have many evidences that it is the rest of a dwarf galaxy that was eaten by the Milky Way. Oh. We know that because we can see different stellar populations around there, and because it is a bit more massive than the other, the right. other globular cluster that we have in the Milky Way. Hmm. So it still okay. is, it is a globular cluster. Okay. We classify it as a globular cluster. The only thing it is that the origin of this globular cluster, Omega Centauri, seems to be very different to the other globular clusters that we have in the Milky Way. Ooh. They are not globular clusters created in other galaxies, and dwarf galaxies that have merged with the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. Omega Centauri is not one of these globular clusters that were formed at the beginning of the Milky Way, perhaps because of the collision of these small halos. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be the remnant of a dwarf galaxy that interacted with the Milky Way some few billion years ago. See, I should be sad, but that's still just more, oh my God. Oh, oh my God. It's <laughs> yes. still really cool. Mm -hmm. But there we go. So that, that's my choice. The, the kind of not, but also is the globular cluster Omega Centauri. Yeah. And that is also why it, astronomers are really, really, really trying to find the black hole that mm. should be yes. in the center of Omega Centauri. Exactly. But what about you, Angel? What's what's your favorite globular cluster? Well, I think that um, for my globular cluster, uh, so we should be wrapping up because we have been talking a lot today. Um, As we always do. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, that is going to be also WhatsApp. Hey, Yay. what a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> so for this WhatsApp for today, we are going to be talking about another globular cluster that is my favorite, that is M13, the great globular cluster in the constellation of Hercules. Ooh. And, well, Hercules is still, from the southern hemisphere, it is a bit low, but it you is. still can see it. And I have a special feeling to this globular cluster because it was the very first deep sky object that I identified by myself when I was 10 or 11 years old. Ah, oh, that's so special! Yes, so it's very special for me. It has a magnitude of around... 5.8 or so, so it is quite oh, bright. Okay. I have seen it with, um, with my naked eye. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to identify with binoculars, believe me, it is very easy. And uh, it is a fantastic globular cluster, although it is not the largest or the brightest of the globular clusters. That's because okay, though. It is Omega Centauri, N22, 47 Tucanai, and I think that it is N13, the next one. So M13, it is at around 22,000 light years from us, as I said, in the constellation of Hercules. And That's far. So the typical distances to global clusters in the Milky Way are bit 10,000. Because Omega Centauri is about 16,000 light years yeah, away. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has um, a mass of around 600,000 solar masses. That's pretty good. So probably, probably with that, uh, it's difficult to actually estimate the number of stars, but probably a bit around the half a million stars mm. around there. And it has a radius of 84 light years. So imagine having half a million stars 
in a radius of 84 light years. That is dense. <laughs> that is quite dense. The estimated age, it is around 11.7 billion years. So, are these more metal-y? There's a bit more metal-rich ah, than metal -like. There we go. And a bit like that. So, actually, the metallicity is uh, a number here, minus 1.33, that is a bit higher when we compare with minus 1.6, the standard for the metal pore type 2 globular clusters. Mm. It's a messier object, so it was identified by Messier, although the very first astronomer who identified this object was Halley. Yes, Edmund Halley. Yes, in 1714. So have a look to it. It is a magnificent view using a telescope. If you have a very good telescope in a very good dark night, you might be lucky and see a little faint galaxy that is very close to it, Ooh. that sometimes it appears also very well in, in, in photograph. Two for the price of one. Yep. But again, um, I have a special feeling to this nice global cluster, my favorite. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> what a nice little, nice little ending to the, to the episode with a little what's up. Uh, as always, everyone, please do send in more feedbacks and more questions. We love answering them. We'll try and space them out a bit more over all of our episodes and not do a whole 20 minutes to half an hour at the start. <laughs> yeah. But... Please do keep sending in questions, we love them. Uh, before we do finish off, I do actually just want to pay a bit of a tribute to Katherine Johnson. Earlier this week, she passed away, aged 101. Uh, she was essentially a pioneering spirit towards space exploration during the time of the moon landings and putting the first people into space. It was her brilliant mind and her brilliant way of thinking that allowed us to come up with the equations mm -hmm. and with the engineering and just, she did so much. Yeah, and it's a, it's a huge shame that she has passed. Yeah, it is, it is really very sad, but at least 101, did you say? 101, but she I, did I, well. I wish, I wish I will get into that age. Um, perhaps an easy way of understanding a bit better the huge contribution that she had it is watching the movie Hidden the Figures Hidden, Hidden Figures movie that it was uh, two or three years ago a couple of years ago Be fantastic movie mm -hmm. definitely recommend it very much recommended from here too yes so we pay tribute to Catherine Johnson 1918 to 2020 okay and I think that with that we should be wrapping up everything. Say thank you very much for yes. listening. Um, don't forget to submit your questions, comments, feedback, uh, and other funny things you want to share with us. Always. Always. And we'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.